I think it's such an important time for the church, don't you? Isn't this an important time for the church? What's interesting about the message that I'm going to preach tonight is that I, I wrote it Thursday. Not knowing, couldn't have possibly known on Thursday how timely it would be by Sunday after the events in Charlottesville and the outrage, rightly so, that it sparked across our nation, the blight of racism, of prejudice, of hate and fear and division. It's not the heart of the Father. It's not the way of Jesus. It's not at all the gospel, the good news of what Jesus is about. I couldn't help but think how God had set me up on an important weekend, I think, for our nation, for the church to not be silent, but for the church to be heard be a voice for the voiceless, to take a stand for justice, amen, for all, that tonight my message is called One, One, at a time when I think many in our nation are hurting and asking big and important questions, and I think many in their faith are praying and acting, and it is both, (laughs) I think this message is important for us tonight, and I pray it'll encourage and inspire and maybe even challenge us to press into what God is doing at the very bedrock foundation of our nation and the nations of the earth right now. I want to speak to you about one. Does that sound like a good idea? See, it's kind of easy to imagine that God is the ultimate big picture guy. This is true. I mean, if you think about God, probably the, the natural thing that comes to mind is, well, he's got universe to run. It's a big job. Massive understatement. I don't know how many prayer requests he has per minute. Could be millions. Just pouring in. I don't know. We just added a whole bunch then, didn't we? All the prayer requests. You think about the fact that he's the God who spoke and there was light and there has been ever since. He's the creator of the universe. He's what the Bible calls Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the Ancient of Days. The almighty God of heaven's armies, ever-present, all-knowing, all-powerful. The Bible tells us that he is worthy to receive all the glory and all the honor and all the power and all the praise forever and ever. Amen. It's a pretty big picture. And in fact, there's a guy in the Bible in the Old Testament called Job. And he goes through probably one of the toughest seasons imaginable, everything that can go wrong does go wrong for Job. I mean, he loses family members, so he's grieving. He loses his property. He's in all kinds of trouble. Then his health goes. And in the midst of all of that, he's got terrible advisors and well-meaning friends that cause him, you know, it's like all kinds of questions come about God and faith and righteousness. And, you know, Job was a good man and he desired to live rightly before God. But in the midst of all of that confusion, God speaks to him supernaturally in a way that I think gives him perspective and perspective from the big picture. God gives him big picture perspective. This is in Job 38, verse 1 to 13. After all, the so-called advisors have spoken. This is what happens. It says, the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm and he said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Have you ever found yourself like verbally processing or praying or talking like you know what you're talking about and then later realized, wait, that was words without knowledge. Anyone else? Guilty as charged right here, right? (laughs) Well, that kind of is what God is saying to Job. He's like, you think you know what's going on? You think anything that you said makes any sense as the right perspective? And then, then he says this, he says, 
Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. This is a, can you imagine already by now, Job's like, oh boy. <laughs> Didn't the whole atmosphere of the room of his life change in that moment? What does God say? I'm just going to give you a section of it. I mean, it goes on. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and then set its bars and doors in place, and I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? (laughs) Hello. (laughs) It's like, I think God's already made his point, but he's really running this one home. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? I mean, on and on God goes. With what? Well, it's first of all, this overwhelmingly is a reminder of God's power, God's presence. He's almighty. It's also a reminder to us from the big picture for Job. It's like Job in some way had lost perspective. God reminded him that he is human, that he is finite, but that God is all-powerful. And then in some ways, to paraphrase, he had no perspective at all on what was really going on. God speaks to him from the big picture. You know, one of the things I love about following Jesus is it's not either or. Most times it's both and. So all at once, everything I said is true. God is, in the sense, the ultimate big picture guy, if you could put it that way. And yet he's the God of one. You know, I was reading just recently, having a quiet time, having my devotions in the morning, and I, and I read the, the whole book of Philemon, which sounds like a big achievement unless you know that it's like basically one chapter, even not even a long chapter of that. So before you're like, wow, he's so spiritual. Yeah, it's not that big of an achievement, let's be honest. <clears throat> So I was reading in my devotions, and I read the book of Philemon, and I noticed a few things. One was, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Uh, and so I asked other people, I thought, maybe, maybe it's an Australian thing. This happens to me all the time. I mean, it's confusing. But it turns out other people, no, it's like Philemon, Philemon. I was like, all right, nobody knows. So I'm going to go the Australian way, which is to shorten it, Phil. <laughs> That's basically what Australians do to everything. <clears throat> That's right, we shorten them, and then you're on safe ground. So Phil, the book of Phil in the Bible, one chapter long. So that was one of the things that I noticed, probably not the most significant thing that I noticed, let's be honest. But I noticed, this is, as I'm reading this book, I'm, I'm stepping back from it. I, I've, I've read it before, but I was thinking, what is this book about? The Apostle Paul wrote it as a letter to help one guy, Onesimus, who was an escaped slave. And somewhere along the way, Onesimus, after escaping slavery, becomes a follower of the way of Jesus, and now is on the eve of returning to his former master. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to accompany him on his journey back. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, kind of in the social pecking order of the day, a big deal, writes a letter for a man who was a slave, And he calls in a personal favor from Phil, as we'll call him. Because as it happens, Paul had impacted Philemon's life as well. I want to read you a little excerpt from the letter. We're just going to read verses 8 to 16. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, 
Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. By the way, you could preach a whole message on that thought. Appealing to you on the basis of love. He says, it's none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. By the way, you're going to notice, Paul, if he has a button he can press to help Onesimus, he presses it in this letter. He is laying it on thick. This is like a, this is like a archetype of the persuasive letter, right? He says, I'm an old man, a prisoner of Jesus. Now I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Now he has become useful both to you and to me. And I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. I got a few chuckles out of this letter, I've got to be honest, because this is some pretty, pretty heavy arm twisting that Paul is doing here, right? He could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, remember? What? But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever, listen, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. You know what I notice? Obviously, I'm, I'm making fun of it, but you know, Paul uses all the leverage he has on behalf, not of himself, but of Onesimus, the escaped slave, to try and ensure the safety and, and well-being of Onesimus when he returns to his former master. You know, later in the letter, he offers to pay any debts that Onesimus might have had. And, and in fact, he says, I'll pay them personally. But then he adds, not to mention that you owe me your very life. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know how I'm going to take you up on that, Paul. And then at the end of the letter, just to kind of the, like the nail in the coffin, is he says, by the way, prepare a guest for, room for me. I'm going to come visit. <laughs> going to check up on you. But you know, it's not Paul's persuasiveness that got my attention. It was the intent of the letter that got me wondering. As far as I can tell, Paul didn't intend for this letter to have a wider audience. Much less any idea that it would be read by billions of people thousands of years later. I mean, read it. Many of his letters in Scripture, it was clear they had a wider audience. They were written to a church or to a region, or they contained instructions to be read aloud or to be shared with others. Not this one. This particular letter is a letter... Basically, for all intents and purposes, one guy writing to another guy about a third guy. And yet, for some reason, God includes it in the canon of Scripture. I found myself wondering, why is Philemon in the Bible? And my revelation was this, and it's simple, but it's profound to me. I think this book is in the Bible because it underlines just so powerfully how much God cares about one. That he would take an entire book of the Bible. That he would move one of the great founders of the church to take his time, write a letter, put his reputation on the line, offer his personal resource, if necessary, to cover the personal debt of one man. And not just any man. Think about the culture of the day. Not just any man, a slave. The reality is God cares about slaves and he cares about the hurting. He cares about you and he cares about your neighbor cares about your co-workers and your families. He cares about the one, anyone in need of a savior. Our God cares. And when you think about this, and 
you take this a little deeper, you understand the context that it was written in. This was written to a culture and in a day where slavery was considered normal and where slaves were thought of and treated as property. And yet the Apostle Paul himself, I'm talking about the social pecking order of the day. You know, he was formerly Pharisee of Pharisees, as high as it gets in the world of the Jews. Now, the Apostle Paul himself, he would go on to write most of, you know, the New Testament. I mean, incredible. And he puts his reputation on the line and offers to pay the debts of a man who was a slave. Why am I making the distinction that he was slave? I don't mean any disrespect by it. I make the distinction because their culture did, because their society made that distinction. And in fact, not only was he a slave, we get another subtle thing in here, which is the fact that the Apostle Paul had to write the letter at all to ensure his safety. The fact that there was the possibility of a debt still owing that the Apostle Paul would offer to cover tells us something more that however it was that Onesimus came to be parted from his master, it was not on good terms and there was a debt still to be paid. In other words, at the moment that he comes to Jesus, he is a man on the run. But you know what I love about Jesus is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Here's a man in fear for his life, on, run, on the run from slavery. In that day and in that culture, one of the lowest rungs that you could possibly be in the social pecking order. And not only does the Apostle Paul, as he should, dignify him, take him in, love him as a son, write him a letter... But he takes it one step forward further when he writes to Philemon. He not only is trying to ensure his safety, actually he elevates Philemon. Did you see that in the way that he spoke of him? When he said that he was returning to him now, quote, as a dear brother in the Lord. Do you think that was normal for their day? In fact, he says, he says that he should consider him a fellow man. In other words, not less than, but equal to. That's our God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Galatians 3.26 says, So in Christ, listen, you are all children of God through faith. Sounds level, doesn't it? In Christ, that's, by the way, the key to all of this is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's only in Christ that these things are possible. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Listen, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We read a scripture like that and maybe it's easy with our kind of 21st century Western Christianity to miss Kind of the radical significance and, and, and the, the kind of the groundbreaking teaching that that is. What he just wrote and the society that he wrote it to is, is incredibly important. And we can miss it because at least in theory, and I emphasize the word theory, our society does not discriminate against the value of the individual. But as events even of the last few days underscore for us, discrimination is still alive and well. And what does that mean? It means that now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs to rise up and take God's word at his word and live it in the earth. Yeah. It's more important than ever for the church to be living this. 
I think about Jesus encountering the woman at the well. It's unusual enough for a man to speak to a woman, let alone a rabbi to a woman, or a rabbi to a Samaritan woman, one of the looked-down-upon races of the day, let alone a five-times-divorced Samaritan woman now living with a guy she hasn't married. And yet again, Jesus levels the playing field. She encounters him in a real and a personal way, and she goes on to radically evangelize a whole town with her testimony. What's my point, church? My point is this. Jesus calls us to love the one. He calls us to love the one. Luke 15, verses 3 to 7, contains a parable that's in two of the Gospels. It says, Jesus says, Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends, his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God's heart is for the one and the church's heart needs to be too. For the one. You and I need to understand the Father's heart is compelled to chase after his lost ones. He's a good dad. He's a good father. And he won't rest until he finds them. And when he finds them, the Bible tells us in multiple places, all of heaven rejoices for just one. See, I find a lot of comfort in that scripture, in that thought, because I'm one of those ones. And I would bet, looking around this room tonight, that there are many of us here too, who at one time or another were one of those ones that heaven celebrated, that all the angels cut loose. <laughs> they were lost, now they're found. They were dead, and now they're alive. There's a similar quote in Matthew's gospel. Again, a parable. He says, what do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about 99 that did not wander off. Listen to this, verse 14. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. That's the Father's heart. He cares about the one and he is not willing. It's not his will that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. It says in another passage, he's not willing that any should perish. You know, but I wonder if I secretly resent his mission. Now that I am safe and sound, do I hope that my Father in heaven will be like some divine vending machine, dispensing blessings to make my life more pleasant and comfortable? I was a beneficiary of heaven's search party. But now that I'm found, do I kind of wish he'd call off all that search and rescue stuff and focus on me? Do I, do I question if the Father's zeal for the lost ones or, or the church's resources that are spent in helping heaven find them and bring them home, love them back to wholeness, if those resources wouldn't be better spent providing services for me? Or, or if I could take a layer deeper, I wonder who we think the church even exists for. Who does the church exist for? I mean... On the one hand, are we like a Christian club? Is that what it is? The church is like a Christian club with a whole range of tantalizing products and services for members. Is that what the church is? 
It's easy to think of it that way. Is that, is that what we are, or are we a rescue team? Are we a halfway house? Are we a lifeboat for the drowning? William Temple famously said, the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not its members. <laughs> Isn't that a good thought? I mean, what other society is there on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members? But that's the church. What does that mean practically, though, for you and I? Is that the mission of the church is ever turned outward and not inward. That means we've always got to retain a passion and a zeal, a focus on those who are not yet here. And I wonder if I see with the same perspective that the Father does. If I get so consumed with his found ones that I've got no margin for his wanderers. I wonder if I'll help him bring them home. See, the way of the world is more like, well, two out of three ain't bad, right? That's more the way of the world, right? Or you would at least say, for sure, 99% is a great grade, but not in heaven. No, in heaven, you leave 99 and you pursue the one. I'm so grateful that Liberty Church has grown, and boy, grown it has. (laughs) Since Andy and I and our three kids moved from Sydney, Australia, seven years ago, fact we were just there this last week and took the kids the older three took them back showed them the house they were living in ages four two and one when we moved to New York City I was just reminded in such a short period of time really in the scheme of things that God has added hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people to our church praise God maybe in the years to come thousands upon thousands upon thousands but you know I suspect heaven will always count us the same way one 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 one. That's the way heaven works. It's about the one. I pray it'll always be about the one for us as a church, so we won't lose that. Be enamored with the things of the world that will keep it in our, in our hearts and on our lips that every one matters. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 25, 40, speaking of what it'll be like one day to stand before God and give an account for his lives, that he's going to say, the king will reply to one group of people, truly I tell you, whatever you did, For one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. I was sharing on this thought in a staff meeting a couple of weeks ago in the the Liberty offices and had the team around and I was sharing about this very thought about the one, not losing the focus on the one, God's heart for the one. And afterward, one of the team sent me a link to a video that I want to show you in just a second. It's a beautiful portrayal, I think. It says this as well as I could ever put into words. The power and the importance of the one. And it's from a church called Vive, Vive Church, friends of ours in San Francisco, a C3 church who've been incredibly kind to uh, Chad and Emily Rodriguez. Some of you know them. They've gone out from our church to plant Liberty San Francisco in the coming months. And these guys produced this beautiful video. And I, I reached out, got their permission to share it because I think this is the Father's heart in action. So take a look at the screen.
goddamn being out on the highway, in my cart, out in the wilderness. The good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. You know, I'm, I'm the one. Isn't that beautiful? I'm a mess every time I watch it. That statement, he ends the video, I am the one. God cares about the one. He loves the one. It's the heart of the Father. It's the heart of the gospel is good news. Good news for the one, for the hurting, for the lost. Voice for the voiceless. Amen. Yet as as I've been wrestling with this and Thinking on this in recent weeks, I, I found in this, this beautiful both and that's so often in Scripture. And, and, and here's what it is, is that all at once, Jesus calls us to love the one. And yet the second thing is, he also calls us to be one. Did you hear that? Two truths together. He calls us to love the one. And yet he also calls us to be one. See, one of, the, one of the dangers in our Western Christianity is that we very easily make the jump from God is all about the one to it's all about me. It's not the same thing, is it? <clears throat> they seem so closely related, don't they? Or at least they can, if I'm not paying attention. See, what God is really calling us here to, and I think it's so timely, and that's the beautiful thing about the gospel. You know, it is both timeless and timely all at the same time is that he's calling us to love the one, and in this day, I think it's more important than ever that you and I learn what it means to be one. See, just before Jesus is arrested and ultimately crucified, dies in our place, he he offers up this beautiful prayer in John 17. First, he prays for himself to be glorified, then he prays for his disciples that were about to step into this intense time of questioning and persecution, but then he also prays by extension for you and I. It hears his prayer. It's in John 17, verse 20 to 23. Speaking of the disciples, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And what's the prayer? Listen, that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. I am them and you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. What's Jesus' prayer? His prayer is that we would be one, and his picture for what that means is the Godhead. That they would be one, he says, as we are one. What's he saying? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one. His prayer is that you, would, you and I would be supernaturally unified, that we would be one. Us in him, him in us. And part of the end game of that, he makes clear, is that so the world may believe. You know, when you and I, despite our differences, come together in supernatural unity that's only possible in Jesus, it's a testimony to our world. The opposite is also true. Does anything do more to undermine the witness of the gospel 
than disunity, division, judgment, and attack. I notice it's in him that we can be one, that we would be a witness to our world. It's a supernatural thing that God does in us. I was reading a very challenging book while I was on vacation, a really good read that I highly recommend. The book's called The Next Evangelicalism. It's written by a a brilliant Asian-American pastor by the name of Sung Chan Ra. And I want to read a couple of excerpts from his book where he, he talks about individualism in one chapter, which is not the same thing as the value of the one. Individualism is where we go so much further. He says, The American church, in taking its cues from Western white culture, has placed at the center of its theology and ecclesiology the primacy of the individual. The cultural captivity of the church has meant that the church is more likely to reflect the individualism of Western philosophy than the value of community found in Scripture, reducing the Christian faith to a personal, private, individual faith. And he goes on to say this, he says, Our church life then becomes an expression of an individualism, yielding a self-absorbed narcissism instead of the church becoming an expression of spiritual life lived in the community of believers or a spiritual life expressed in the context of neighborhood community, our church life becomes a fulfillment of our individual desires and needs. Elements of the worship service, including the preaching of the word and the worship of God, become reduced to a form of therapy that places the individual at the center of the worship service. Excess Individualism in American society yields, therefore, the loss of community life. It's a profound read that reminds us the importance of holding these two truths together. Not either or. They're not opposed to each other. It's a both and. We must both love the one and we must be one. We must love the individual without promoting individualism, which is not the same thing. Valuing diversity without neglecting our unity. Let's never pursue, this is so important, let's never pursue comfort in the false community of sameness. You know, sameness is a false community, right? It's not the same thing as community in the scripture. It's a false community, but some people will seek comfort there. We're going to embrace the beautiful tension of difference. Amen? There are so many expressions of diversity But in this season, I think more than ever about the beauty of racial and cultural, ethnic diversity. What's interesting to me is, as I said at the introduction, I wrote this message Thursday before any of the events of yesterday. The evil of racism and bigotry, a blight on our nation, reminded us that, you know, the enemy is still at work in the earth. You know, we as a church are deeply multi-ethnic. I love that about our church. We did a survey late last year. And discovered to our joy that we represent at least 40 nations that we know of and counting. And in actual fact, by the numbers, we discovered that actually each of our communities is even more racially and culturally diverse than the neighborhoods in which we gather. I love it that way. Because I think that's how heaven's going to be. Do you think heaven's going to be a whole bunch of sameness? (laughs) Every tribe and every tongue before the throne. I get that in the context of community even, even when we're united by what we have in common and we gather around the name of Jesus and lift him up, it can still be complicated. I mean, none of you have ever had this experience. I'm sure 
right? It's never been complicated in community. We've never bumped up against those differences. No one's ever offended you, I'm sure, right? Even unintentionally in the context of community, maybe, maybe, maybe. There's so many expressions of difference, gender difference and generational difference, but, you know, I think maybe there's a temptation in the heart of people sometimes, even if it's unconscious, thinking to themselves, wouldn't it be easier if, you know, we just had a place where, a church where everybody looked the same? Well, then we'd have to settle for a subculture, or even worse, a monoculture. That's the last thing heaven's going to be. An enclave of sameness, that's not the heart of the Father. Our passion has always been, as a church, that we would reflect the diversity of the cities that we serve. And of course, it looks different even in New York from neighborhood to neighborhood. In Manzini, this, you'll get a kick out of this. In Manzini, we were celebrating that we had some white people. That's what diversity looked like there, right? Because <laughs> it's all about the context into which we plant and pastor, what diversity and embracing diversity looks like. But it is the heart of the Father. I read to you earlier in the message, Galatians 3, and I want to read it again, but emphasize something different. This is what it said. Galatians 3, 26 to 29 said, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, nor there is there male and female. Listen, what's the key? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I'll bring it home with this, but you've got to realize what is this scripture saying. In these few powerful verses, Paul weaves together these two beautiful truths, equality and unity, equality and unity together. Equality in that he addresses us in the plural. He says, you are all what? Children, plural. You are all children of God through faith. He says at the end that you are all Abraham's seed and then heirs, plural. That's our beautiful diversity reflected in the body of Christ, but level at the foot of the cross. But he also says he addresses unity when he addresses us in the singular, for you are all one. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So if you're the worship team, come join me. I've got to bring this home. But it strikes me there are so many things we could do with this message. Not just listen to it and have our hearts stirred and be reminded again of these timeless truths. But So bring this to a close. And before I pray tonight, I think there are at least three things you could do as a result of this message. Now, one thing that you could do, I'm sure the team will remind you before the service is done, but we, we as a church, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to find their place in community here. So we have a thing called Next Steps. Tonight, as it happens, is step two, which we call making liberty home. And to me, that's that, it's both sides of this that are addressed in that moment. If you don't have a church home, a place to belong, a, a community, well, for one, we want to value as one. We want to love you as one, connect with you, believe God has a plan for you. And we also want you to join in us this mission together of being one. There's a place for you in the body of Christ. So after the service is done tonight, have this short class, an opportunity to put your roots down, find a place, find home, and be welcomed into a beautiful, diverse family in God. That's one thing you could do. Second thing you could do is you could take a moment tonight before your head hits the pillow and ask the Holy Spirit, who's the one? 
Who's the one that I could reach out to? That's what we did in our staff meeting. Before we went to our tasks and our projects and our desks and the meetings and the activity, we stopped, pens down. Come, Holy Spirit. Show me a face. Remind me a name. Someone hurting. Someone missing. Somebody that a sheep that wandered off. Somebody I haven't seen in a while. Somebody call their hearts to mine. Remind me of their names, their faces. And I reached out to some people. In fact, even this morning as I preached this, the Holy Spirit reminded me afresh again, somebody else I'll reach out to before this night is done. Well, you could do that. You could be the hands and feet of Jesus. You could join him in his mission, the good shepherd for the one. Well, the third thing you could do is maybe you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And tonight could be your night for all of heaven to celebrate you coming home. I want to invite every head to be bowed, every eye to be closed in this atmosphere of worship. We watched that beautiful video, the story of Kevin earlier. But you know, God loves you just as much. I wonder the lengths that he's going to, to love you, to help you, to call to you. And bring you home. This might be your very first time at Liberty Church, or maybe you've been coming for a while, but the truth is, in your heart of hearts, you, you know, you haven't declared Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Ask for forgiveness. You know, He died on the cross and paid the price for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. If you'd believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'd be saved. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.